Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 92. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you may recall hearing the saying that innovators should fall in love with the problem, not their solution. That advice, that entrepreneurs should fall in love with the problem, helps to drive home the point that we shouldn't focus on our shiny new technology, that really, we need to focus on something that is more important than our solution. But is it true that we should focus on the problem instead? I recently spoke with a very successful innovator and investor who challenged me on whether that was really the right advice after all. Her position was that there are lots of problems that need to be solved, but in order to build an innovative solution or business, you need to focus not on the problem, but on the primary need. In this episode, we look at needs-based innovation, and to get a better understanding, I spoke with Marta Zanke, PhD. Marta spent 13 years at Stanford University, first as a doctoral student, then as a faculty member and founding director of digital health at the Stanford Byers Center for Biodesign. Her experience spans from designing software and hardware devices to walking the full process of health tech innovation. Marta's advised companies, spent time as a medical device fellow at the FDA. She's invested in companies through her role as equity partner at Palo Alto-based DCVC. And she recently relocated to Barcelona, where she's the founder and managing partner of health tech micro VC fund, Nina Capital. In fact, we featured two Barcelona-based business leaders in a row here. In the previous episode, we spoke to Francesca Wutke from Almeral, so be sure to go back to listen to that episode as well. I've had the pleasure of knowing Marta for a few years, and when I took a fresh look at her LinkedIn profile, there was something written there that really seems to capture what she's all about. Under philosophy and goals, Marta wrote, and I quote, I believe in a culture of collaboration and giving, and in the ripple effect in all aspects of life or business. Keeping my values close and my loved ones closer, I am moved by a desire to make positive impact and serve a community of health tech innovators so that their inspiring ideas become solutions that matter in the hands of those who need them most. Unquote. You can find the link to Marta's profile in the show notes for this episode. Marta also very kindly worked with the Stanford Buyer Center for Biodesign to create a handout that you can also download from our website. Get all the links and information by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 92. And I can't forget to mention that you can also find all our shows on the new Health Podcast Network that is very cleverly named Health Podcast Network. You can find it at, you guessed it, healthpodcastnetwork.com and discover other podcasts such as A Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, Startup Health Now, Oliver Wyman Health, What to Know by W2O Group, Hit Like a Girl, and many, many others. Don't forget to leave a review for our show on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Now let's tune into our conversation with Marta Zanke. Marta, thanks for joining me and welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Marta, we're going to dive into the biodesign innovation process. It's an approach that's been developed and refined at Stanford Buyer Center for Biodesign since about the year 2000. But first, I'm really curious about your move. You just recently moved from Silicon Valley to Barcelona. You grew up in Italy and you spent the last 13 years in the U.S. What made you want to make a change and what are you working on now from your new base in Barcelona? Well, then I'm very excited to be back in Europe. And the reason that brought me back here is I saw an opportunity, or using the biodesign terminology, I saw a need, which was to support with early stage capital uh, the growth of uh, the digital health entrepreneurs on this continent. 
You have amazing breadth of experience. We're glad to have you back in Europe, and I'm sure your friends and colleagues in the U.S. are also glad to have you here on the ground looking at the innovators and the innovation that's happening here. I'm really curious, since you left 13 years ago, what are some of the differences that you've seen between Europe today and Europe 13 years ago, and what are some of the differences that you notice in your very recent experience in Silicon Valley to your experience now in Europe? Well, I'm amazed by how much Europe has changed, especially on the innovation front lines. It's truly transformed. And I see uh, the vocabulary of innovation and entrepreneurship spoken more broadly and much more sophistication than when I left. I joke sometimes that back in 2005, when I was getting ready to leave Italy, I actually had never heard the name venture capital. To be honest, I think startup was also a very eccentric word back then in Italy. And that's changed tremendously. This is a language that is spoken, propensity for risk much higher. I see a class of very talented funders, which I am privileged to support, which I don't believe existed 15 years ago. So Europe has changed. Now to make the comparison with the United States, it's a little trickier because the United States have changed tremendously as well in the past 13 years. And so um, am I comparing it to US as I see it today or US as I see it 13 years ago? <laughs> That's a really good question because I've lived outside the US for 16 years and you're absolutely right. The US of 16 years ago is so different than the US of, of today. So it's up to you. What are some of the, the differences that you see between uh, your, your US experience bundled up in a ball versus your your current first impressions or return impressions of Europe? Yes. Well, what I see in the United States today, and I'm especially speaking with the California perspective, of course, that's where I've lived. It's an unprecedented low supply of talent for startups and the dominance of the tech giants means that what I knew to be the dynamics of Silicon Valley is starting to suffer quite a bit. In a way, it's, it's a bit of a victim of its own success. And some companies are aware of startups uh, some 10 years ago and now we've grown to be uh, giants that are attracting significant talent and making it very difficult for talent to leave, especially as they're faced with the correspondingly growing cost of living, which is now among the highest in the world. So it's a, a region that is changing tremendously. I still do believe that it is obviously capital, or if you want, the city that everybody rightly associates with innovation, but it's very difficult. And I compare it to what I see in Europe. So when I speak about Europe being potentially the next uh, 20 years shining time for innovators on this continent. I see not only a renewed mentality, but uh, talent is in large supply, especially technical talent and clinical talent. I see uh, a support on the part of uh, sources of uh, non-dilutive capital at the very early stage, which is very characteristic of Europe only, and it's not present in the US or at least it is in much minor measure. I'm speaking, for example, of European commissioners' grants at the European level, but also of the capital that is available nationally or at the regional level even to support startups in the very early stages. And I see also universities organizing to create technology transfer offices as they've never done before. Barcelona is a shining example of that. So that difference in the two ecosystem is leveling off, it's becoming negligible in a way, and Europe has an advantage in that access to capital is still 
relatively easier. Salaries obviously are correspondingly lower, but the quality of life is actually much higher on this side of the continent, especially where innovation happens. So if you're investing at a very early stage, you're investing in, in people mostly. And so to see the comparison on that level um, really makes the case for Europe having a shining moment and an opportunity to grow the foundation for the next 20 years success in innovation and entrepreneurship. You know, in America, we often get criticized for being very myopic and not looking much outside the borders of our country. But then we look at some of the powerhouses, the the huge companies that have come out of Silicon Valley and Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, all those massive companies that have come out of the West Coast of the States, and they've really become global powerhouses. What are your thoughts on the way that the Europeans are approaching it? Are they thinking big in the same way? And do we need to up the game a little bit in terms of looking outside of the countries or the continent and really becoming a lot more visionary in terms of the commercial and global opportunities for business? (laughs) <laughs> That's a very good question. And you have a point. I'm here at Ina Capital. We, we look for and support European funders that are determined to effectively and efficiently save, uh, serve healthcare participants on this continent and internationally. So we, we have to state that we look for funders that have such global ambitions. As in my experience, those are, I would say, special ones. Uh, I do see that quite often entrepreneurs tend to have more of a regional, even uh, national outlook on the potential for their technologies, which instead should be fulfilled at a much broader geographical level. I think it's something that actually is made in a way reasonable by the fact that it is a quite a fragmented geographical landscape and the healthcare industry is quite different, honestly, from country to country still. But technology has the potential to overcome these differences and that what uh, businesses should aim to do. Not all entrepreneurs think that way. I personally prefer and have a bias for those that, again, have international ambitions. And those, by the way, are the ones that we are especially positioned to help the the most. Brilliant. So that's through your new company, Nina Capital. People can find that by going to nina.capital. And you've got a lot of information. You've put together a tremendous team. And I know you've you've brought in a lot of your relationships and contacts in the U.S. to help to get this organization focused and resourced so that you can really have the maximum impact for those European-based companies. So you want to just give a sort of snapshot about what you're looking for for the companies that should be approaching you there at Nina Capital? Well, thanks, Dan. I love this opportunity. Um, well, Nina Capital, we're just getting started. We just recently completed uh, the incorporation of our alternative investment fund manager, so we're ready to go. And we have a vision, a vision for the future in which data derived through computing, IoT, and sensor technologies deliver meaningful insight for improving health and preventing disease. And we look at companies, we believe that the creation of new businesses is built on in-depth understanding of the complex network of healthcare system participants. And we marry that with advanced data science and information technology-enabled products and services. In a way, I'm giving away an important core of the by design philosophy. The methodology which we apply when we look at companies is very heavily informed by the approach that I've been teaching and using at Stanford University for the past numerous years. I mentioned before that we look and support European funders and have this international ambition, not because we believe that that's, it's actually the opportunity to take something small that is European um, and support it on an international landscape. But we also believe that that's uh, the potential for the highest return on investment for us. Yeah, I really applaud what you're doing. We're so glad to have you back here uh, working out of Barcelona and serving the needs of the European founders and startups and wish you a lot of success. We want to do everything we can possibly to support you. But let's talk about that 
experience that you've had at Stanford with the Biodesign Center there. And let's focus on this biodesign innovation process. This is something, as I mentioned earlier, has been around and in development for about 19 or 20 years, since about the year 2000. And it's fairly well known in the U.S. I think it's far less known in Europe. But just to sort of equalize everyone's knowledge, can we just sort of go through the basics of what the biodesign innovation process is? Of course. So very broadly, biodesign provides a comprehensive roadmap for identifying, inventing, and implementing new medical devices, diagnostics, and other technology that are intended to demonstrate outcomes and create value for healthcare stakeholders. It's uh, very useful for engineers, medical and business students working in multidisciplinary teams. And it was born at Stanford University, uh, as you said, in the year 2000. It has continuously evolved to uh, match with uh, the way that the healthcare industry, of course, was also evolving, particularly with inclusion of value concepts. And also in the past uh, nine years or so, we have an understanding of how the process applies and is informed by the evolving digital health landscape. So identify, invent, and implement. Those are the three main phases of the biodesign process. So a saying that I say often and that has been around the industry for probably about a decade as well is that innovators should fall in love with the problem, not with their solution. But really, when I went through a lot of the material that you sent across, and you sent me a lot of material about what you're (laughs) working on with uh, the biodesign process, it, it really seemed that it isn't the problem that you want to focus on. It's really the need. Can you explain that? Yes, of course. And, you know, you mentioned three phases, identify, invent, and implement. It is really the identify phase that kicks off the biodesign process and is at its core. And, and the key karma of the biodesign process is that biodesign innovation is driven by a compelling need. Now, let's not discount innovation that does not start with that. Medical technology innovators in both university environments and business environment often follow a technology push strategy. So they they discover or invent technology, which is really enabling and breathtaking, and then they go on and search for applications to commercialize it. And this has, you know, worked quite well in the pharma industry, find a new molecule or a new pathway, and ultimately that leads to the creation of new drugs. There are examples in medtech as well. One of them is uh, surgical robotics, unquestionably a potential route for product development. But what we teach Stanford by design is that it is almost possible and it's actually quite the risking the success of the new venture to start purely with an important need which is unmet and then invent the technology that will help solve it. It's a need-driven approach which as you said it's uh, not very well known in Europe that is something I plan to correct and it is in the nutshell one of the reasons why we're here today. I love this opportunity to speak about how a well-characterized need can be the DNA of a very good invention. And that is the mantra of biodesign. Well, I should mention that you did send me a lot of information, but you also sent me a summary sheet that you put together in collaboration with the Stanford Buyer Center for Biodesign and through your company, Nina Capital. And we'll have that available on the website. We'll have a link in the show notes. So whatever podcast player you're listening to, if you're on their website, you'll be able to find a link to this document that Marta and her team have put together. And there's 10 key points in there. We won't go into all of them in depth, but I do want to make sure that the listeners go and pick this document up because also at the bottom there, few links that you've given for videos and textbooks. Now, I've watched six of the videos that were linked there that took me through the six different stages of the biodesign process. And and I really was fascinated by this need piece because 
as I mentioned earlier, people say that fall in love with the problem, not the solution. But really, as I saw the, the videos and I went through your presentations about how difficult that really is, when I was thinking that we were getting to the need, we were actually just defining more and more problems. And I saw the iteration through the videos and through the presentations about how hard it really is to focus and define that key need. And then the second stage of course, of the process is to go through the needs screening. So a lot of time spent in that sort of loop between needs finding and needs screening. How do people go through and implement that needs finding process? And how long should they really take? Because we understand, let's start building, let's invent. But really, I think we need to understand how long and what sort of resources we need to apply to that needs finding stage. Yes. Yeah. Very good question. And uh, let me restate something that you said extremely well by design innovation driven by a need. The way we start is by identifying a need and taking a very deep dive to understand the landscape of participants to that need. In the healthcare, it's a very complicated landscape where incentives sometimes align and most often do not. Understand the problem in depth by interviewing as many stakeholders and participants to that problem as possible. Understand what existing solutions are today. Making sure that all of these perspectives of the participants to that need are represented. And going in depth is very hard, in fact. And what we encourage to do is actually go in depth into multiple needs. Because once you start understanding a need, in a way, you, you get attached. <laughs> so one solution that we preach is that if you actually try to do this for many uh, needs at once, you will find that it's a little easier to kill bad needs and let the best ones survive by collecting a very large set of needs. To your question, how do we do it in practice? Well, I mentioned before, there are two different environments, one which I recently left and the one that I continue to work in versus an entrepreneur than venture capital. In academia, in the way that we teach it to our fellows, we actually spend the most of our fellowship in period focus on the identification of needs. So we send fellows into the hospitals, into other environments where care is provided. We ask them to observe needs, to collect them, and not to stop until they have collected hundreds of them. And we teach them a way to characterize those needs, to make sure that those needs can be compared by translating them into need statements. The writing of those need statements is actually very complicated for some people assume the first time they hear about them that it's uh, quite easy to say way to solve a problem in a specific populations in order to reach a certain outcome. But when you actually enter into exercise and to try to do it diligently in a way that allows you to have a comparison between hundreds of needs, it's not trivial. I'm speaking with Marta Zanki, PhD, founder and managing partner of Nina Capital based in Barcelona. When we come back, we'll dive into those three key components of need statements and explore how they can be developed and applied. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this word from one of our sponsors. I'm here with Marta Zanki, founder and managing partner of Barcelona-based micro-VC Nina Capital. Marta, before the break, you ran through the three key components of a need statement. Can you list those out for us again and take us through each of them one at a time to give a little bit more color around each? Problem, population, and outcomes. Outcomes are key, and we ask fellows and entrepreneurs to be really specific about what outcomes are measurable and what outcomes are most important. Populations is the second 
And it's really just about for whom the innovation is created and who will benefit the most from the outcomes that we're aiming to demonstrate. And then the problem is essentially something uh, that stands at the very beginning, easily to be confused with the outcomes. It's actually quite different in the examples that we see of the strongest need statements that have led to innovation happen and emerge from the virus center for biodesign. By the way, there are many specific examples of digital health as well. Um, Iridum, for example, was born out of the same for biodesign. To your health, which was recently acquired from Apple, also born inside same for biodesign. So I think it would be very interesting for those that are want to learn more about biodesign to go and look for those companies and study those examples to understand how they were born from an observation original observations made inside the Stanford University hospitals and School of Medicine. One of the things I love around healthcare is that there are so many different stakeholders and so many different vantage points to look at the needs, whether it's from a cost perspective or a regulatory perspective or a user perspective or a payer perspective. So do you end up with multiple different need statements quantifying the need for a particular problem for each of those different user groups or stakeholder groups? Oh, no, no. Ideally, the strongest need statements are the ones uh, where alignment of the incentives is the highest. So the, obviously, the, there are an opportunity as you come in and make an original observations about the problem uh, to write multiple need statements until you get to the strongest definition of the need. But that's a trick. That's actually where the exercise is very difficult. And we do ask for innovators and fellows to pay attention to value upfront. The core strategy, I would say, in exploring needs is to dive into the environment looking for all that you mentioned, suboptimal patient outcomes, recurring complications, frustrations on the part of care providers, other signs of gaps in care delivery. And innovators should really actively look for opportunities to improve on value for all of the stakeholders involved. And that alignment of incentives where the value is shared by all of those participants is where the opportunities are the highest. And, and do focus on cost as well as the outcome of care. Because, well, most obviously, if you only focus on the outcomes of care and the clinical outcomes of care, some of the participants of that stakeholder networks will not be incentivized. And so by researching the economics of the disease, current treatment options, it is possible to develop directional estimates of the value associated with that need from the very beginning. And again, the part of starting to kill needs is the toughest because it is when you realize that some of the needs that you thought may be most compelling, perhaps the clinical outcome is the highest, then you realize the economic outcome, well, it's not so great. And so perhaps if you're really trying to create a business that is the risk and has the highest chances of success, it's the other one that you should look for. The one where incentives are highest, and that includes the economic ones. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the differences between the U.S. of 15 years ago and the U.S. of today. When I was selling medical products 15, 20 years ago, there was no such thing as a value assessment committee. And now, <laughs> you know, you need to really cost justify your products before you're even able to show them to a surgeon or a nurse or someone that would benefit from it. You really need to make the case economically for the hospital or the purchaser of that product before you can even get it evaluated. So that is really important to think about the business case, which is, again, part of the reason I love healthcare is because of all these different priorities that you need to do. It makes it very complicated and very difficult and maybe frustrating and it takes more time, but it's such a rewarding challenge when you get to align those various perspectives and priorities and come up with a solution that really works. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I, I love the by design process and I'm using it heavily 
not just previously as an innovator and then someone at Stanford University supporting the creation of technologies and businesses out of Stanford by design, but now also as a venture capitalist. There is some psychology at play here. It's very hard to kill needs in a way because all of them originate from problems in clinical care. And in that sense, they all are important. There are patient health outcomes at stake. And by design innovation process gives us a very efficient framework and mechanism to do the job. Innovators, when they have looking at many needs and they understand that the potential to make a significant difference in patient outcomes is by finding the ones that are stronger, the ones where alignment of incentives and value are, are the highest, then those are the ones that they want to keep. And it makes it easier to let go, I would say, of the ones that are not so strong. And just for anyone who's listening who may think, gosh, well, we're already far beyond that. We've already got a product. We've already got customers or something. This isn't something that you need to implement you know, from step one to step six. Even if you've already got a product out or you've got a technology that you're developing, you can still go back and go through this process to be really clear on this foundational differentiating step. Is that right? Oh, yes. You will still benefit from following the by design methodology. In fact, it is critical important if you're given a technology or if you as a technical team know that you have a particularly strong asset in developing a certain type of technology, you can still go back to the identify phase, very carefully evaluate the underlying assumptions that have been made about the need behind that technology. Put yourself in the position to make original observations, pausing to articulate the need and write the need statement even behind the technology solutions. That is something that we really speak about. We don't speak as much as uh, product market fit, but solution need fit. And you might find yourself in a position in which you're not sure that uh, the technology that you have developed is truly a solution to any need, but you can take a step back analyze it, and you will find that they will give yourself the weapons to truly understand if you have something differential, something valuable and defensible that creates the business foundation to create new ventures on top. Now, for any founders that are out there, any startups, there are thousands of things that they could be doing, and they really need to prioritize their time. So I think one of the key things that you talked about earlier is that this really can de-risk the process or the, the investment. So that's a key aspect. When you are looking at your to-do list, you need to look at where the ROI is and where the important things are versus the, the sort of urgent or nice to do things are. So how would this stack up in terms of really preparing a, an organization, a startup, a founder for getting the success, getting the clients, getting the investment that they need to succeed? Very good question. I'll answer it in two ways. First of all, yes, iteration is key. <laughs> and it's something that you don't need to postpone to the moment in which you have a technology. The design thinking approach really focuses on iteration process once you are starting to prototype. We do it a lot earlier at the need identification time. And it's very helpful to do it because you realize that you can reduce the chances of mistakes reduce the chances of value wasted, of capital wasted. If you do it before you invest yourself too much in the in technology development, if you just iterate on the need and on the fundamentals of what will become the business model for your company. 
Second, my recommendation for those that are startup funders and are speaking with investors is that don't underestimate the importance that we give, or at least that I give, to your expertise in the problem that you are addressing. As a matter of fact, when I am meeting a funder for the first time and I'm starting to learn about what they are creating, the first meeting for me, it's all about understanding the problem. We go minimally into the technology and by the time we start talking about what the technology is, looks like. In a way, it should be obvious because you have convinced me of such depth of understanding of the problem. You have laid out all of the criteria of that need so well that I'm already in a way starting to imagine what the right technology solution will look like. And by the time you present it to me, I say, oh, wow, that's, that's obvious. Of course, it's the right solution. That's really interesting to hear you describe it that way, because that's actually something I learned through a sales courses that I went through years ago, <laughs> is really to, you know, when you think that the person you're speaking with, the prospect, if you will, that you're building a relationship with and that you're, you're trying to understand, when you think that they're ready to move on to the solution, stay there a little bit longer in that pain discovery, because as you demonstrate your understanding of their problem and empathize with them and relate with them and learn more about what their particular experience is, you're helping to conjure up this awareness that they really need some help and they need some solution. They need the pain to stop. And then that really puts them in the frame of mind to help them to get to the solution that is going to relieve some of that pain and provide the benefits that they're willing to pay for ultimately and willing to adopt. Yes, and most founders intuitively know it. But I think what's really difficult to do in healthcare is that the pain is not from one particular stakeholder in that problem. There are patients, physicians, hospitals, payers, other types of providers. It's a very complicated landscape. So what I find that even funders were need-driven sometimes do, which I believe is a mistake, is that they focus on just the one-sided perspective of what the needs is all about. And yeah, I understand why, you know, I, I'm in this message because ultimately I want to see patients' lives touched. And so we, we start with understanding what the patient need is and what the clinical outcomes are. But to lay the foundation for a new venture to be successful, there are a lot, a lot more that need to be painted from the very beginning and understood deeply. And so when I dive into a presentation with a funder, I really want to understand the whole landscape. That's really helpful. Thanks so much for sharing your experience with us today, Marta. Again, everyone, you can get Marta's handout that she's put together in collaboration with the Stanford Buyer Center for Biodesign by going to the link in the podcast notes uh, or visiting our website, digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash podcasts. Marta, you're the founder and managing partner of Nina Capital. People can find out more by going to nina.capital. And what else should people know? Are you looking for particular members of your team and some of the particular areas of technology that you're looking for? Well, thanks, Dan. I'm looking forward to building relationships across Europe. We are based in Barcelona, but very often on planes uh, across uh, the continent. And I'm really looking forward to meeting funders, especially addressing needs in the areas of oncology, aging, and cardiovascular, in which uh, we have the strongest knowledge and assets to leverage. But other than that, we're delighted to be here. I'm especially delighted to be back to Europe, and I look forward to seeing the growth of the innovation capital here for the next uh, decades. Thanks again for this opportunity, Dan. Sure. Thank you, Marta. Thanks for joining me. That was Marta Zanki, founder and managing partner of health tech micro VC fund Nina Capital, based in Barcelona. 
You can find Marta's LinkedIn profile and all the show notes on our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 92. Don't forget that's also where you can download the document that Marta and her team at Nina Capital put together along with the Stanford Buyer Center for Biodesign that gives more insights about needs-based innovation. Don't forget to check out our show and all the other podcasts on the brand new Health Podcast Network by visiting healthpodcastnetwork.com. While you're tapping on your phone, please take a moment to give us a quick review on iTunes and drop me a line. Let me know about your review and I'll give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. You can find me on email at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com or on Twitter at healthtechdan. That's all for me for now. Until next time, keep on innovating.